Good evening, Risen Hope. How are we doing this evening? I only got a response from Tim there, so we need to figure that out. Um, let, me, let me pray and ask God for help before we open the word. Heavenly Father, the words of that song, that there is none beside you that is worthy. Oh, that, that, that may be our heart's cry tonight, Father God, as we press in this month of first fruits with prayer, with fasting, with seeking in your word, longing to know you and to, to know your son, Christ Jesus. I pray that you would grant us tonight, Father God, eyes to, he, to, to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive your word in the scriptures, Father God, and we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit's presence. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Draw us nearer where we need to be drawn near, Father, and grant us the ability to, to, to have a desire, a longing to seek you and your Son, Father. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the, the radiance of the glory of God he is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every single subatomic particle of it is upheld by him. By his word, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea up as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. He laid the foundation of the earth, and his right hand spread out the heavens. He brings out the host by their number, calling them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He spoke, and it simply came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So who has measured his spirit? What man can show him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? I'll answer that. No one. No one. Compared to him, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted, according to Isaiah, as the dust on the scales. All nations are nothing before him. And they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. He, he, is, he is the Alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. His dominion is, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation to generation to generation, never stopping. And he does according to his will among the, the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, according to Daniel 4, or even say to him, what have you done? And yet, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was rich for our sake, he became poor so that us by his poverty might become rich. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every single one of us, have turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of his people and he died. The one I've been talking about died. But on the third day, All of that changed. He was declared to be the Son of God in power and according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. God raised him up, Acts says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to us, to the church, to his bride, to his body, the fullness of him, which Ephesians tells us fills all in all. And therefore God has bestowed on him a name, listen to this, that is above every single name. So that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His name is Jesus do you know him like this? For the month of January, Risen Hope as a church has been uh, committing our time, our energy, our affections to this one thing. Hosea 6.3 says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And that's been our mission this month. We've been doing something called First Fruits. We've been setting aside time and food and things that are in our lives that we might spend time knowing Christ, knowing God, both in word and in prayer. Jeremiah 9 says, um, and God's saying this in Jeremiah 9, let, it not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's our boast. Our boast is that we know him. We know the Lord. 
unless we feel like this statement in Jeremiah 9 is merely Old Testament sentimentality, Jesus takes that reality and brings it right into our New Testament lives. In John 17, when he prays to his father this, he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the essence of eternal life isn't just going to heaven. It isn't just even living forever. The essence of eternal life, according to Jesus, is knowing God and knowing his son, Christ Jesus. And so what's clear, I mean, by this text and by countless others that I don't have time to bring to you today, (laughs) is that There is simply no other task we could commit our lives to, our hearts to, our minds to, that is more important than this, knowing him. And today what I'd like to do as we continue this month is just ask a a simple question. What does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to know him? I mean really know him. Not just understand a few theological facts about who he is. Um, Anybody knows those facts. Anybody can know him. Satan knows all of them, and he hates all of them. What I mean when I say know them is to have hearts and souls that see the realities that I just spent a few minutes compassing in Christ Jesus and respond to them with love and devotion and adoration and joy. That's what I mean. What does it mean to know Christ in that way? Think about all that I've already said about him. The language in Scripture, using English and whatever other language translation you might have, The language in Scripture strains to the point of breaking in in trying to adequately describe the indescribable. And that indescribable person, Jesus, we are all called to know. So how do we do this? And to answer that question, I want to go to the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Starting with verse 7, this is going to be my last sermon in this series in the month of January. Um, God willing, next week and the week after that, uh, Mr. David Woodard, Mr. Jacob Benton will be uh, preaching different facets of this same reality, the same theme, knowing God. But as I contemplated where I might spend my last time with you on this topic I just could not escape the gravity well that is Philippians 3. When it comes to knowing Christ, when it comes to knowing Jesus, this is essential. This text is, it would be a travesty if we passed, out, passed beyond this series and did not go to this text. So we're going we're gonna to look at this. Philippians 3 verse 7. In this passage, here's some backdrop. Paul is explaining to the Philippians why he's a Christian. Um, he's telling them what happened to him. And he begins by telling them what his life was like before he encountered Christ. He says that he had everything. I mean, everything that a uh, Jewish man in the first century could have. He had the right pedigree. He had the, the right theology, at least according to his Jewish peers. And he had an intense, fervent zeal for their traditions. He was in a class of his own. In Galatians 1, he actually says this about him. He says, For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently and tried to destroy it. 
and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. That's who Paul is. Paul was that man. There was no one like him. He was so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers that to protect those traditions, he would drag people off to be executed. Christians. He wanted Christianity gone. And he's given his life to that. And then something happens and Paul abandons everything he had given his life to. And all that he had poured his soul in, he looks at that and he turns and walks away. Everything. And what I want to do here by looking in, in Philippians 3 is I want to see what his reason is for why that happened. What caused Paul to give up everything that he achieved? And Paul gives us one very clear answer. He tells us in Philippians 3 verse 7 this. Whatever gain I had, in other words, all of my accomplishments, all of my pedigree, everything that I was, my gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So there's the reason, Jesus. And if we miss that, he's going to go on. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So let's understand what happened here. Paul encounters Jesus, the one that I described at the beginning of this message, and the reality of who Jesus was invaded his heart and his soul, and his response was, I'm abandoning everything that I did before. I'm abandoning that. Everything that I pursued in my life before, that is gone. In fact, he says that everything in his life, at that point, he accounted as loss. Loss. It's in the loss column of his life. And he says, the reason is that I've discovered the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Prior to this encounter, you have to understand, Paul hated Jesus. Hated Jesus. He wanted the name of Jesus to be erased from every single mind in Israel. He wanted Christianity to be history. And then he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, and he takes a 180-degree turn in his heart, not in geography, in his heart, <laughs> and goes the opposite direction. Paul, to, to Paul right now, Jesus becomes someone who has infinite worth, infinite value, infinite glory, and next to Jesus, everything else in Paul's life is a loss. In fact, he says here, he suffered the loss of all things, And he looks back at those all things and he counts them as rubbish. That's the ESV translation. Rubbish. That's his description of everything he had achieved in his life. All of it. That's rubbish to me. The word in in Greek, and hopefully I get this right, Daniel, you can correct me later. (laughs) Skubalon, which means garbage and refuse and the scraps you throw to a dog. In fact, it's actually worse than that. Like that's the sanitized definition. During Paul's time, this word was used to describe dung and feces. There's a kind of disgust that is attached to this word. And we need to be clear, this wasn't because he looked back at his persecution of the church 
and, and, and knew that that was horrible. He's taking everything good in his life, everything bad in his life, he's bundling it all together, and he's saying, that to me is like excrement. I don't want it anymore. I found something else. Paul's view of everything that he had accomplished before he coming face to face with Jesus was this. But then he lays eyes on Christ and there is no turning back for him. There is nothing that could be compared to Jesus. And so one of the questions I ask when I come to, sorry, my mic is jacked up tonight. <laughs> one of the questions I ask when I, when I get to a text like this is, do I feel the same way? Do I feel this way about the things in my life? Do, do, do this, the balance of, of my life, the scales that are in my life, do they feel like this? When we come to the scriptures and we read um, the same text that I enumerated at the beginning about the glory of Jesus, do we feel what Paul must have felt when he wrote about the surpassing worth of Christ? Do we feel that in us? And this is really what January is all about. Like the first fruits effort to, to fast and to, to put aside things that distract us from this purpose is all about this, to know, to press on to know the infinitely surpassing worth of Christ. And so what I want to do today is just key off of a few words in verse 8 and go to a few other places in the scriptures and, 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 and just try to embrace what Paul's calling us into by showing us this. In verse 8, Paul says he did this, he let go of everything in order that he might gain Christ. That's what Paul's after. He wants to gain Jesus. The, the goal of him letting go of everything in his life is that he would gain Christ. Now think about those words. He's letting go of everything in order to gain one thing, and that thing is Jesus and I want to understand in this text, what is the relationship between knowing Christ, experiencing his worth in this world, and ultimately gaining him in the end? There's a link in our lives connected between those two things, us pursuing him in this life, in the scriptures, in, in the word, in prayer, and us gaining him. How does that work? Um, or another way to put it would be, what does it really mean? What does it mean to know Christ Jesus like Paul knows him here? And to answer that, I want to just flip over one page to Philippians 1.20. Paul, when he wrote, uh, some of you may have to flip over, some of you may be like, no, I'm right here. Uh, Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. He was uncertain that he would be released. He, he thought that it was possible that he could be executed here and that's going through his mind as he's writing these words to the Philippians. So consider that as we read this. Philippians 1.20. Paul says to them, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. Gain. So we see the same word here, gain. Paul is telling the Philippians that no matter what happens to him, I stay in this prison, I get released, they kill me, whatever happens to me, whether I live or die, this is what's going to happen. Christ is going to be honored no matter what. 
Christ will be magnified no matter what. He's going to be exalted in whatever happens. This was his eager expectation. This was his hope. And this isn't just momentary. He says, now and always. In other words, in Paul's mind, there was no scenario in which Christ was not going to be magnified. He had his mind fixed on this. Paul isn't going to waste a moment of his life, nor is he going to waste a moment of his death. Both his life and his death are going to be pressed into the service of making Jesus look awesome. And the reason why is that Paul feels compelled to do this is that Paul knows who Jesus is. He knows who Christ is. He knows and loves the surpassing worth of Jesus. And he says, immediately after this, he gives the argument, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then we come to that text, and we hear it so often that we just don't really think about what he's actually saying here. Think about this. How is living Christ, and how is dying gain? Like, why say it that way? And why use it? He's using it as an argument, that's what the for there is, to buttress what he said about, I don't care if I live or die. So what does he mean here? Well, Paul anticipates our question about this, or at least the Philippians question about this. And he says, if I am to live in the flesh, this is the next verse, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So this is Paul's answer to what he means when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, to live means fruitful labor. In other words, he's going to be giving his, every moment of his life to faithfully preach the gospel, preach the glory of Christ. That's what he means by to live as Christ. While he is alive, Jesus is going to be everything. And this letter, even that he's writing while he's in prison, is an example of that very thing. He is showing Jesus to us while he's in captivity. And not just a a limited, weak, sort of sentimental view that some people have of Christ, but Paul wants Jesus to be for the Philippians 2,000 years ago, and for us, he wants Jesus to be a, a matchless vista of glory that had no origin and will never go out of existence. Like, he wants us to see who he is. Jesus is all that Paul wants to talk about. Because he knows Jesus. He knows him. And so even while he's in chains, he can't help himself. He has to write a letter to somebody about Jesus. That's what it means to live is Christ. But how in the world is dying gain? If living with is, is, is the exaltation of Christ, how can you pivot, Paul, and say, to me, to die is gain? Well, he tells us, My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why, Paul? He says, for that is far better. Far better. To be with Christ is far better than, listen to me, literally anything. Anything. 
There's nothing greater than that. When Paul considers all the benefits of staying alive in this world next to the glory of Christ Jesus, he looks at Jesus and the only words that surface in his heart are, that's far better. You are far better than everything else that I have in my life. There is no comparison between the two. And before we get the, the wrong assumption that, that, well, maybe Paul, you know, he has a tough life. He's been persecuted. He's been abused. He's in church. Or he's not in church. He's, he's in prison. Uh, he wants to be in church. Um, he, we need to keep in mind that, that living for Paul is Christ. And so dying for Paul is not gain because he's in prison or because he's suffering or any of those things. He doesn't care about those things. The reason dying is gain for Paul is because Jesus is that worthy to him. Jesus is that glorious to him. All the Bible language that I used and all of those things that I said about Christ at the beginning are explicit passages of scriptures talking about the God of the universe, who Jesus is. All of that language to paint a picture of Christ for you at the very start is real to Paul. So real to him. He knows Christ like that. It's not words to Paul. It's not just a theory, an idea, or a hope. Jesus to Paul is his treasure. And so I'm inviting myself and all of us, all of us at Risen Hope, to think about our own lives right now. Think about your families. Think about your friends, your career, your possessions, all of your stuff, your vacations, everything in your life that gives you joy, the good things, especially think about all of the things that are there, good or bad. And All that you have in this life, everything that is represented by your lives in this world, think about those and then compare them to Jesus in your hearts. Do this diagnostic with me. Does he match up to them in your affections? Could you say with Paul, to die is gain? Like right now. To die for me would actually be gain. Or would we say, If I die, that's actually a big loss because I would lose my family, I would lose my home, I would lose my job. Where is Christ in our affections and desires? This this is the kind of question that I think is demanded of the reader when they read statements like Paul or from Paul like this. I don't think we can get around asking a a self-evaluating question and I think it's important for us to see, like, do I have the kind of understanding of Christ? Is my vision of Jesus such that when I leave my life behind and only see Jesus, I say, gain, gain. Is that the way I look at my life? That's what this entire month is about, getting our hearts into a position. I want us, all of us, to see Jesus in that moment no matter what we've given up in this world, and to say, gain. Seeing you is gain. And the only way that that's going to happen, the only way that that can happen is by knowing who he is. Knowing him. That's the pathway. And one of the reasons we know that it's the pathway, knowing Christ is the pathway to seeing him as gain, is because when Paul's about to die, Knowing Christ is what anchored him in those last few moments. 
everything we read about in Philippians becomes vividly real for Paul in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter before he's executed. And I want us to listen to what he says to Timothy, his young protege, about suffering for Christ and about dying for Christ. 2 Timothy, Paul says this, listen to this. I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. He knows him, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul in that text is telling us why he is able to suffer, why he's able to die well. It's because he knows whom he has believed. He knows him. And that person he's believed is Jesus Christ. He knows Jesus. And that knowing of Christ is what's going to carry him through unspeakable suffering and even through his own death. And I think one of the questions that comes up in my mind when I read Paul saying this to Timothy is, how does that happen? How does knowing someone allow you to go through what he's going to go through? He says, he tells us here, he says, I am convinced that he, Christ, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Christ is going to guard all that has been entrusted to Paul until he leaves. Every moment he's here, Christ is going to guard him. So how does Jesus protect Paul's witness in the middle of suffering? Like, how does Jesus guard Paul's devotion and commitment to him, his delight in Christ in the middle of his last breaths? Like, what it, how does it happen? Is it a switch? Is it automatic? And the answer is no. The, the, the way that Christ guards Paul as he is dying, and the way that, listen to me, he'll guard each one of you as you die, is through the same specific way, and that is that he will open our eyes and continue to open our eyes in our life to his surpassing worth. His worth is what carries us through. There is a vision of Christ that is so grand, so powerful, so gripping, that it will allow Paul, it will allow all of us to pass through any suffering in our lives, and even through unspeakable trauma and death, because Jesus simply is that glorious. We need to see him as that. This is how God guards Paul. This is how God's going to guard each of, each of us. He, he, he's going to give us a, a, a picture of Christ in the scriptures that we hold on to. And all of our lives are given to this. Like that's what the life of the Christian is, pursuing this. Remember what Paul said in, in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may what? Gain Christ. Paul knew the one he believed. His life was shaped and formed by knowing Christ, which is why he was able to get through all that he did and die well. So do we know him? Do we know Christ like this? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Think about what Paul means here. 
as we behold Jesus in the scriptures, as we come to him in his book, and we see him in the scriptures, standing forth in all of his glory, we are being transformed into the same image. We are becoming like Christ. We are, we are putting our, our roots into who he is and becoming like him. Colossians 3 says it like this, that our lives in this world are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And that creator is Jesus. You and I become what we behold. What we give our time to, what we give our energy to, what we give our affection to, we, we inherit that reality. And what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians and in Colossians 3 really is that we need to go to Jesus. We need to behold the Lord and, and be transformed in seeing him for who he is in the scriptures. So the only pathway to gaining Christ is by knowing him, seeking him. There is no other way that that happens than through that, through what Hosea has been telling us from the very beginning. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And in Philippians 3.12, Paul, just after describing the supremacy of Christ's worth, tells us how such a pursuit in our lives is even possible. Because I know that when I say some of these things, when I say them, I myself say, that's impossible. There's no way. Like, give myself to Christ in such a way, like, like completely let go of everything in my life and see him as gain. That is impossible. But Paul says, no, 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 it, it is very possible. And here's the reason why. Paul's going to tell us how such a pursuit in our lives is possible because it's not rooted in us. It's rooted in Jesus. And this is important because tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're not going to want to read your Bible. Next week, you're going to not want to spend time with Jesus in prayer. A year from now, this is going to be true. Every day, it's a struggle. And we need to see him. We need to see him in his glory. And so how is it that we pursue him? Paul tells us in Philippians 3.12, I press on to make it my own. Why, Paul? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the driving force that motivates Paul. That's the, the fuel for his desire to pursue Jesus. Christ Jesus has already made us, think about this, his own. We belong to Christ like, do you feel that? Do you feel how awesome it is to be able to say, I belong to Jesus? Paul felt it, and he pursued him with his entire life. And it, it, drove, him, it drove him to give his life to just knowing Christ and ultimately to gaining Christ. So in the next few moments when we uh, begin worship, um, if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to participate in the Lord's Supper. And, and I just want you to reflect. The Lord's Supper is an act that memorializes the cross. And the cross is the moment where Jesus made it very clear, we belong to him. On the cross, Christ ransomed us from our sin, from our rebellion, and he also ransomed us from everything that draws our attention away from him. And on that cross, Jesus made us his own. And what I want more than anything is for us to feel that reality.
We belong to him. I want us to know what it feels like to, to belong to Christ and then from that place to, to give our lives to knowing him, to pursuing him, to seeking him, give our lives to, to, to one purpose alone, Christ. I want to, in everything that I do in my life, I want to know Christ and I want to show him to this world. It is impossible for me to overstate the importance of this in our lives because it's impossible for me to overstate the worth of Jesus Christ. There's no way for me to do that. Everything I said about Jesus at the beginning, I want you to know this. Everything I said about Jesus at the beginning is true. Every single word of it is true. So Risen Hope, in the rest of our time this month, engaging the issue of knowing Christ, knowing God, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you are so glorious and your son is, he is our treasure, he is our delight. And uh, I know that the hearts of, of my friends and, and myself, we, we, we yearn and long to have the affections that we see expressed by the Apostle Paul. We, we want that. But we are sometimes in a sea of distraction. We are sometimes in the grip of other treasures or other pressures or, or something in our lives. And I pray that you would use this month as really, Father God, as a crucible to break out of our hearts and our lives things that have limited or inhibited our ability to seek you and to know you, and to know your Son. I pray that you would grant us not only the desire and the inclination to come to the Scriptures because Christ Jesus has made us his own, but give us eyes to see the glory of Christ so that we can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed. And he is able to guard all that he's entrusted me. Give us desire for Jesus. Help us surrender to Christ. Help us give our lives to him. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.